I want to take just a moment, as you can see, we have the elements of communion that are before us today, and we will be participating at the Lord's table um, towards the end of the, the service this afternoon. And, and I want to take just a moment and express to you the seriousness of the supper. And most of that comes from the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in this morning as we pick up here in chapter 13, verse 18 of John's Gospel, because there's something that happens in the midst uh, of this picture where Judas is still with the disciples. Jesus is about to institute the Lord's Supper. He's about ready to participate in the very first one with the disciples. And he does something that I think we need to take note of before we even begin and read this morning. Jesus sends Judas away. Judas is not a believer. Judas is someone who clearly does not know the Lord. And Jesus takes that opportunity before he goes to the Lord's table. And it is at that time that he speaks into Judas's life and he says, do what you're going to do and do it quickly, and Judas leaves. The Lord's table is serious. It's not to be taken lightly, and it is only for people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. It's for believers. It's for those who have said yes to the offer of the gift of grace. And so this time that we're going to spend at the Lord's table... The Apostle Paul actually speaks to maybe someone here today. The end of chapter 11 of the first letter written to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul echoing what Jesus is going to say as he passes along the ordinance of communion to the church. He tells them, he says, don't let anyone partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, for to do so it is to crucify again the Son of God. And he says, and because that, because people took the supper lightly, the Apostle Paul said, some among you are sick and some sleep, which is a euphemism for die. The Lord's Supper is serious and it's for believers. It's for people who have invited Christ into their life And so if you're here today and you have yet to do that, you've not purposefully, willfully understood the gospel that Jesus Christ, God's own son, came into this world. He lived a sinless life. He was crucified on Calvary's cross. His blood was poured out for the remission of our sin. That he was buried in a tomb that no one had ever been buried in, and he was raised three days later by the power of God, and he lives forevermore, making intercession for those of us who believe. If you've never invited that Jesus into your life, then before we come to the communion table, you can do that today by simply confessing that you are a sinner, that you desire to have a Savior, and that you're inviting Jesus Christ alone into your life 
to be your Savior and to be your Lord, and thereby confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, resulting in salvation. And then feel free to participate. But if you don't wish to do that, and no one is here to force you, we would simply ask that you allow the communion elements to pass you by. Please don't participate in the Lord's Supper if you can't say from the depths of your heart that you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord. And we're going to see why in just a moment. And so would you pray with me? And we'll pick up in verse 18 of John chapter 13. Father, we thank you for what happened on the cross. And we thank you that you, Jesus, were so kind, so grace-filled, even in dealing with Judas. And we pray that, Lord, there be no hypocrisy in this room. Lord, I, I pray that there's not one person who isn't ready and willing, desiring to participate in this communion service because they have believed in the only begotten Son of God, you, Jesus, alone for salvation, confessed you as Savior and Lord. I pray there's no one here about whom that is true. I, I pray that we have all confessed you, all have believed in you. But Lord, we give you this time and we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We, as your children, desire to hear from heaven And so speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18, John chapter 13. Jesus is about to institute communion. He is about to break the bread. He's about to sip from the cup. Final night of his life. Before he is off to be tried six times illegally. Ultimately to be whipped, beaten, taken to the cross, murdered buried, only to be raised three days later. I do not speak concerning all of you. I don't speak concerning all of you. And here's why. I know whom I've chosen. Can I tell you that there's not a person in this room that's able to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes? He knows those whom are his. And he knows those who are not his And he is not fooled by our religious works. He's not fooled by your jumbling of your words with pseudo-Christianese speak. He's not fooled by anything that we do. He knows exactly whom he has chosen, who he has called, and who are his. And it is in light of that statement that Jesus now continues. But that the scripture may be fulfilled... He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, and now I tell you before it comes, every single thing that Jesus did and said, every miracle, every sermon, every parable, every person he talked to, every single thing that Jesus did while he was on this earth was for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that was to convince men that he was the Son of God and the only Savior. That's the reason he came. It is the only reason he came. He was on a mission, 
That mission was to offer his life a ransom for many. To all who would believe, Jesus came specifically for that purpose. And so I want you to see the immense magnitude of the grace of God in the life of Judas Iscariot, who is still sitting with the disciples, who is at the table with Jesus. And Jesus said, the reason I am doing this, and I'm paraphrasing, is so that when you see it and hear it, you will believe that I am Messiah, the Savior, the Son of Man. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, and now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, notice why, that you may believe that I am he. He said, the reason I'm not going to do what you would probably think I would do. You see, if I were Jesus sitting at the table and Judas was there, here's, here's what's going to happen. It's him right here, this guy. Keep an eye on him because he's going to betray me. He's going to walk up in the garden. He's going to kiss me on the cheek. And here's what would have happened. Peter. Judas would have never made it out of the upper room. The reason we know that is because Peter actually tried to kill Malchus, the high priest's servant, and he was so poor a shot he missed his head and lopped off his ear. So there is zero doubt had Peter actually understood, had the disciples understood, that Judas was the betrayer, he would have never made it out of this room. And so Jesus, in the multitudes of his mercy and grace, does not reveal fully that it's Judas. Because the rest of the disciples would have taken Judas to the woodshed. He would have never completed what he had already set out in his heart to do because the disciples would have taken care of him. Brothers and sisters... That is the manifold grace of God poured out in the life of Judas Iscariot that even in the moment he is about to be announced as betrayer, Jesus is not going to reveal it. Can I tell you that he's been gracious with you too? And me? He's been gracious to me. He's not revealed to everyone all of my sin either. Or yours. He keeps that to himself because he loves you so deeply and supremely. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, in order to leave as much time as is possible, we find the story of Judas Iscariot, who is about to betray Jesus, and Jesus won't rat him out. Check it out with me. For most assuredly I say to you, verse 20 says, He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. You see, you can't know God the Father without knowing God the Son. You can't just believe in God. And Jesus is going to make that crystal clear in chapter 14. 
If you receive the one whom Jesus has sent, when the word comes alive in your heart, because as Paul said to the church at Rome, writing there in the 10th chapter, 17th verse, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you hear the gospel message, you're going to know it's truth because it came from God. And so to hear it and to believe it, to receive it, resulting in that faith coming into your life that allows you to believe on the only begotten Son of God, When you believe in Jesus Christ the Son, you believe in God the Father. He said, this is a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose. There are people that want to, well, I believe in God, a supreme being. But this whole Jesus thing, that's a little bit too too narrow for me. This whole Savior thing. I'm okay with the Savior thing, but man, the Lord thing, I'm just not cool with that. I'm not down with the Lord thing. Because the Lord thing, that means he gets to be my master. I don't really want a master. I want to be my own master. That's the heart that Judas had. Judas wanted to keep lordship of his own life. He was a hypocrite. He hung out with the rest of the disciples. He heard every message that Jesus preached. He saw all the miracles. He went to church on a daily basis with Jesus. And yet he did not believe. Don't let that be you today. Wherever you are in this sanctuary, don't let that be you today. For in the hearing of the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation to them who believe. The gospel is being preached to you today. Jesus Christ, God's own son, came into this world that the world through him might be saved and he is unwilling that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and this represents exactly what he did to secure it. His body was broken for you, his blood was shed for you so that you can have eternal life. So that your sin can be forgiven. That remission can be made. Because the price on our heads is our own heads. And Jesus said, I'll pay that price for you because you can't pay it. And we're going to see that in just a moment. And so this passage, Jesus is dealing with an unbeliever in such a gracious way. He's saying, Judas, if that's what you want, then you can't stay here because what we're going to celebrate, I'm celebrating with my family. And you don't want to be a part. You don't want to be a part of my family. Our Lord, our Savior is so gentle that he will not force you to believe, but he simply offers you the opportunity to do so. It's still in view, I believe, for Judas, though he will not receive it. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then you can see what goes on in the minds of the disciples as they begin to process that statement. And then the disciples looked at one another, which is the natural thing that one would do, amen? The master has just said, somebody sitting at this table is going to betray him. Peter, is it you? John, is it you? Andrew? Who is it? James, you're you're, you're his half-brother.
perplexed about whom he spoke. Yeah, I'm guessing they were perplexed, all right. But I also want you to know the tenderness with which Jesus continues this whole scene. Verse 23, and now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John, the author of this gospel. And the only way he could have leaned on Jesus' bosom is he would be sitting on the left side because Judas was the one with whom Jesus is going to dip, who's on the right side. So here's John, here's Jesus, here's Judas. They're within earshot of one another. John's going to lean back. And Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. This is one of the most merciful, beautiful pictures painted in the entire gospel. Jesus has just revealed who it is, but he's also said it in such a way that they're still not certain. And we know because Judas still gets to escape. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon. And now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. It was right to that point that the day of grace slipped out of Judas's hands. Up until that point. And then Jesus said to him, do what you do quickly. Notice verse 28, but no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. The very son of God to whom Judas is going to go in the garden in a few scant hours and with a kiss betray Jesus. Jesus actually covers for Judas. You talk about grace. Not what I would have done. Probably not what any of you would have done. You would have been looking for your pound of flesh. It's him. Why are you letting him get out of the room? Don't you know what he's going to do? You see, in a human sense, we would have thought through all that and said, oh, no. We can wait another week. We'll figure out another way for this death on the cross to occur. There was no other way. It's the reason that Jesus came. He came to die. And furthermore, the prophet Zechariah had actually told what would happen with Judas 500 years earlier 
when he said that the Son of Man would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. From God's view, a sovereign plan was being carried out. From man's view, there was choice available all along the way. No one at the table knew. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, buy those things needed for the feast. A divine protection over the mind of the rest of the disciples so that they're not quite getting it. They're still able to think there's hope. He's just going after some supplies for the supper. Or maybe he should give something to the poor. But having received, verse 30 says, the piece of bread, he went out immediately. And note this, it was night. You see, men don't receive Christ because they love the darkness. Men don't believe because they don't love the light. They love darkness. They go out into the darkness. Judas's heart was already darkened. And he went where he felt comfortable into the darkness. He wandered off to do what it is that he had come to do, his heart already hardened by his own action. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Do you see it now? The one who didn't know Jesus has gone out into the darkness, and now the eleven are going to celebrate communion. The twelve minus Judas, the unbeliever. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I should be with you a while longer and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. Look, guys, here's the deal. You can't die for your own sin. He he might as well have looked at Peter and said, Peter, we could nail you to the cross all day, every day, and it still would not be sufficient to even redeem you. Because you're not sinless. You can't die for your own sin. No amount of work can get you there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Nobody can boast. Jesus was reminding him, look, this is what I came to do. And so now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, and please would you mark this? It wasn't new in the sense that they'd never heard it before, but he was elucidating their minds. He was causing them to focus in on there is no such thing as a Christian who lacks love. You can't claim to be a believer and be a hater of those for whom Christ died. That's why when our buddies from Westboro Baptist Church show up, seems like now every other week, to protest. And they have those hate-laden signs out there. I can tell you there is not a believer carrying those signs. That is not someone who loves the lost. 
That is someone who hates. And hate has so enraged their minds that they fall into the category of a Judas, not a Jesus. Because Jesus loved Judas. And Jesus loved me when I was still dead in my trespasses and sins. And he loves you. Now he wants to free you from the bondage of sin and his penalty death. But he loves sinners. And so that people could know how much Jesus loves, notice what he says next. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says the most specific statement in all of the Bible about a Christian and love. By this, all, notice it doesn't say all believers. It says every last person on the face of the earth, believer and unbeliever, by this all will know that you are my disciples, Jesus' disciples, that I am in you and you love the Father and we are one. Everybody's going to know that you're one of my disciples if you have love one for another. If you love each other the way I have loved you, people are actually going to know that you're one of my kids. But can I tell you the converse is also true? The exact opposite is also true? And that's why I tell you there should be no loveless church. That's why John will write, as he writes to the final seven churches in the book of Revelation, you have left your first love. He writes to a loveless church. And that church is a church of the last days. And when a church does not love the way Christ loves, you have to question whether they actually know the real Savior. I don't care how theologically correct you are. I don't care how many good deeds you do. Because Jesus himself says, in that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, have I not done great and mighty things? Did I not command the mountain to be tossed into the sea? And he will say to that person, I've never known you. Love is the identifying factor that anyone can see because it's a special kind of love. It's the love that Christ had for us on the cross. It's love that held him there. It's love that put him there. Love is the reason that Jesus went to the cross. That's why he said, greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. He's saying, I'm trying to tell you Don't be a hypocrite like Judas. Be a lover like Jesus. You see, but that hypocrisy doesn't happen overnight. I think it creeps in quite slowly in most people's lives. 
a little hardness there, a little coldness here, a few faults, a few failures, a few times when you think God doesn't mean what he says and doesn't say what he means. You want him as Savior, but you don't want him as Lord. And all of a sudden, a hardened heart. Just exactly like Ahithophel there in the rebellion of Absalom. He didn't start out being an enemy. He was a friend. He became an enemy. Because he refused to love. I won't change. I won't forgive. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Bitterness, anger, hate, unforgiveness rot at the very soul of the individual who carries those things. And so Jesus says, don't be a Judas. Don't be an actor. Don't change faces. You see, you can start out with simply just drifting. And before you know it, you can end up defying the Lord. And one of the tools that the enemy uses is religion itself. Religiosity. Religious works over and over and over and over again. I've had pastors that I've known. I've had people who work in church ministry that I've known. I've watched people attend church who absolutely the testimony of their lives is that they are not even a believer because they're loveless. And while we'll get to it on Thursday nights in a few weeks, the context of 1 Corinthians 13, that great love chapter, is that is the Spirit of God alive in someone's life. It's not just a marriage chapter. We use it for marriage. Do you want to know if you're filled with the Spirit? Look in the mirror and see if you love. See if you love people the way God loves people. The unworthy people the disagreeable people, the unlovely people, the unloving people. You see, love is what marks us out, not religion. It isn't because you go to church. Let me be really blunt. Nobody is saved because they go to church. You're saved because you believed in the only begotten Son of God. That's it. He's going to say that in the next chapter, in chapter 14. We'll get there. But Judas was religious. Every message, every miracle, every motivation of heart, every word that Jesus said, that the other 11 heard, Judas heard, Judas saw. But he didn't believe. And you could tell by what he did. He was unloving to the end. He said, love you, man. Love you, bro. Don't let that be you. His heart was hard. That same sun that melts iciness 
also hardens clay, family. We're supposed to have soft, pliable hearts that the Lord Jesus can speak into all day, every day. Don't let your heart become hard. Don't let the words of Jesus fall on deaf ears in your life. You see, when I think on these passages, I put myself first. Oh God, how could you love me? Jesus, why would you die for the likes of me? Why would you offer yourself up in my place? You see, when you personalize the cross, you understand why the Apostle Paul said, please don't participate at the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Because here's what happened. That eternally hard heart of Judas allowed Judas to hear about and see the things that happened to Jesus, and he didn't care. He didn't care. When I think of what happened to my Savior, and I'm going to have the communion team begin to come, and they'll pass out the bread first and then the cup, would you please honor the Lord by hanging on to both of them, and we'll partake at the end together. But when I think of what Jesus went through, sometimes all I can do is just sit and weep. Sometimes all I can do is think, Lord, you did that for me? You see, we kind of clean up the whole story most of the time. But the evening begins with the work of Judas. That's where it starts. A kiss that should have been for a friend who loves was a mark of hate. And then Jesus is tried six times, all illegally. He's bounced back and forth between Herod and Pilate and Caiaphas's house and Anaphas's place. In the process, they're maltreating him each time. They're dragging him, pushing him, shoving him. The reason that we say his body was broken, only part of it is the beating he took in the courtyard of Pilate, which in and of itself was enough to strip his back of its flesh. enough to to kill the average person all by itself. But in some ways, to me, that's not even the worst of it. Because Jesus was already helpless. He was already shackled. But his body was broken for you. And so it was after that that they put a robe on him and mocked him. It was after that that they put a crown of thorns and beat it on his head with the rod. It was after that that they put a bag over his head and punched him in the face. And had the audacity to say, if you're the son of God, you tell us who punched you. 
Oh, he could have told them for sure. He could have struck them dead. He could have taken the life of every person that got within 20 feet of him just with a word. But he didn't. His body was broken for you. Every word, every pluck of his beard, every drop of spit, all of it was because Jesus loves you. He loves you. He loved you enough to endure that. Don't miss that part of communion. He did it willingly because he loves you. He would have done it again, but it wasn't necessary. For the Son of Man died once, and once was enough. But Judas's heart wouldn't receive that. He, he wouldn't bow to the glory of the cross. He wouldn't look on that suffering and humiliation and go, God, you did this for me. He, he wouldn't be like the one thief on the cross that said, Lord, this day, remember me. And Jesus said to him, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, boy, I hope you can get down from here and go to church. I hope you get baptized, because if you don't get baptized, you're in trouble. No, he said, today, by merely believing, you'll be with me in paradise. You see, that's love. That's what real love looks like. That's why real love cannot ever be hypocritical. It can't be hypocrisy. Love is always born out in action. 100% of the time. You can't say you love someone and do the very things that tell them you don't. And so Jesus didn't. And that brings us to the cross in its finality. As Jesus echoes these statements from the cross, as he says, look, I've done all there is, and he cries out to tell us, die, it is finished. It's done. He had also said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You see, I I don't know if you've ever thought about it. I'm not sure those words would get out of my mouth. I don't know that I could say that. And maybe you're struggling today with some hurt, some pain, some thing that's happened to you in your life. Something awful, horrible has happened to you and you're having a tough time letting it go. I'm telling you, Jesus wants to take that right now and he wants to wash it away and make you white as wool. He wants to take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. He wants you set free because he died for that sin. He died for your anger. He died for your bitterness. He died for the hate. He died for the pain that you're enduring right now. He died so you could be free, not so that you could remain in bondage. So don't. His blood is sufficient 
to remit your sin. Full payment of debt. As far as the east is from the west. Though my transgressions be as numerous of the sands of the sea, so great is the love of God that every last one of them is forgiven because of the blood of Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul said, please, please, please don't participate at the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Because Jesus died. Jesus was beaten. His blood was poured out. And that is what we celebrate. His love was not hypocritical. Because true love can't be hypocritical. And so he gave all so that we could be saved. So that I could go to heaven. God gave up his own son so that you could spend eternity with God. And so Jesus took the bread and when he broke it he said take and eat because Jeff this is my body broken for you let's partake together enough if enduring all that wasn't sufficient Jesus took the cup after supper he said after he had supped from it himself he said to the disciples I, I want you to understand something this cup is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. Shed for me. As often as you drink from it, remember me. Let's partake together. Would you stand with me and we'll pray together? Jesus, we we want to say thank you, but the very words don't seem sufficient. They don't seem like they're enough. But you simply ask that we would remember what you did, be thankful for what you did, and oh Lord, how we are thankful. Lord, how I'm thankful that you have forgiven me of my sin and cleansed me from that unrighteousness. 
And in the place of that unrighteousness, you put your own righteousness in my account. Thank you, Lord, for being broken for me. Thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood for me. And Lord, we remember you. We honor you. We praise you. We magnify your name together because you are worthy of that praise. We ask all this in the matchless name of our Savior and Lord Jesus.